Um, well, a few weeks ago, I was on a flight from St. Louis to Austin. I was at the seminary taking a class. It was riveting. It was uh, called Lutheranism in the Age of Orthodoxy. If you know what that is, you are a nerd, because I didn't know what it was, and I still don't. But um, five hours of lectures uh, for five days a week. Um, but uh, I, I had some homework to do, and on the way home, <clears throat> it's not a long flight from Austin or from St. Louis to Austin. I didn't have Wi-Fi on the plane because it was southwest and it's just going downhill. But um, sorry, uh, and. Uh, it's like the new Delta. Anyways, uh, and I was on the flight, and I was like, I'm just going to do my homework and get this paper pounded out and be done with it. I had about an hour and a half, um, and I put my headphones in, canceled the noise out. No one was next to me, and I had no distractions around me. I had no toddler pulling on me. I had no church people calling me. I had nothing at all. I had no device to just stare at aimlessly into the dark abyss, and I was amazed with no distraction how much work I got done in an hour and a half. Like I was, I think it was the first time I experienced like what they call flow state where it just was going. It was amazing. And it was that moment. I mean, I know I'm distracted. We all are, but that hour and a half of concentration showed me how distracted I really am. I have a professor or had a professor, Dr. Gibbs, and he, um, he wrote a, it's about 1200 page commentary on the gospel of Matthew. The gospel of Matthew is like that big. And he wrote three or four volumes. I remember we were in class and we're like, Gibbs, why, why do you write, how would you write 1,200 pages? He's like, I had nothing else to do. We're like, okay. And, uh, but that kind of, he shared his um, kind of morning routine with us. And he said he would get up and when he got into his office, he would shut the door and take his phone off the hook and not open his computer and just sit there for an hour and think. Like, what? <laughs> you just sit there and think. We're like, about what? And he's humble, like, probably, oh, nothing. He's probably, like, reciting the Greek backwards in his head or something. And, and I just was amazed. I'm like, you are who I want to be when I grow up. That he just kept all the distractions at bay to stay focused on the task in front of him. He answers his email one time a day. Oh, Lord, if that could, what I could do. And you know what? He's the only human that anytime I email him, he gets back to me within 24 hours every time. He has a phone, a cell phone, but it's a flip phone. And he says he only has it because his wife makes him carry it with him in case there's uh, or like an emergency. I don't know if he actually knows how to use it. But, uh, but he is just this guy that, that is so focused. And he's by no means perfect. I'm probably blowing some of that up. But it just is, it's, the air we breathe is distraction. I don't know all the studies, but I've heard stuff. You can look it up on the internet. Um, but that the human attention span is like getting closer and closer to that of a goldfish. Hey, pay attention. You probably, you're probably zoned out three times already, right? This is just the world we live in. And as I've been preparing this message, I've been wondering, I've been wondering this for a while now, how much of what we do in the church, especially in the West, and when I say the West, I mean like the developed Western part of the world, how much of what we do is actually just distraction, I have a little mailbox in my office, and I get every single week, I still get like flyers from, from different ministries that are trying to te sell us the best thing for the next church growth or discipleship or whatever it, it may be. And those things aren't all bad. I'm sure the people that have started these things have good intentions, but how much of it is actually just a distraction? Our text this morning from John we pick up in verse 11, 
But if you go back to the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus is in dialogue with the, the Jewish leaders of the day, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And, and we often give them a bad rap because often Jesus is going toe-to-toe with them. And he's, he's critiquing them. He's calling them out. He's questioning some of their teachings or how they're interpreting the law. But the reality is, if you study the history of these, these sects of Judaism, Judaism they, they started off with good intention. Their desire were to faithfully preserve Torah, God's commands, and lead Israel in faithfulness. And sure, there were some bad apples in the bunch, maybe a lot of them. Maybe it had been so corrupted by the time they got to Jesus. They had actually gotten so in in bed with the Roman Empire that they were just kind of looking for power and influence and money. But if you look at Israel's history, Israel, they were a stiff-necked, sinful people. And often they got into just awful sin because they got distracted. That they started taking their eyes off of the, the commands, off of the covenant they had willingly entered in with Yahweh and started looking at the nation like, ooh, look at that. Oh, that's shiny, that's sparkly. And next thing you know, they're sacrificing their children to the foreign gods. And not to make light of their sin, because Yahweh was very serious about the consequence of their sin, and Jesus was very serious with the Pharisees of the consequences of their, their false teaching and how they were leading people astray. But that's the context we find Jesus in. And, and, at, and starting in chapter 10, uh, you can go read it later, Jesus starts painting pictures and images with, with uh, sheep and shepherds and gates and doors and thieves and robbers totally relevant to you and I. Any of you a sheep farmer? Anyone have to chase out a thief yes, uh, this morning trying to steal a sheep at, out of the door of your pen? No, no, right? Uh, th- that's a whole nother text we can dive into, but at the heart of it, Jesus is saying, I am the door. And he's saying, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, I am the only entrance into that kingdom. Sure, there have been other shepherds, There have been some faithful shepherds, but there's actually, he's critiquing a lot of the religious leaders of the day saying, these are actually the thieves and the robbers. They are false teachers. They are false prophets. I am the true doer. And then that's when we pick up in John 10, 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He says, I came that they may have life have it abundantly. So how is this abundant life? Then Jesus shifts from talking about him being the door, where he actually says, now, I am the good shepherd. Not just a shepherd, but I am the good shepherd. So how does this abundant life come? Because he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in these eight verses we're looking at this morning, Jesus talks about laying down his life for the sheep three times out of eight verses. Jesus is contrasting himself against the thieves and the robbers. And then even in this portion, as Jim read, we have the hired hand. The hired hand, they were not invested in the welfare of the sheep. They were just getting a paycheck. And once the wolf showed up, they're like, this is not worth the wage. And they take off, leaving the sheep ready to be attacked and devoured by the wolves. That that hired hand is not the good shepherd. 
Jesus is saying, I am the good shepherd. Context is everything when reading the scriptures. We are living 2,000 years removed in a completely different culture. And it's a translation from different language. When you and I hear, I am the good shepherd, we're like, oh, yeah. he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the living word. Actually, in, the, in John's gospel, there's this discourse going on, the great I am statements. If you go and read after our passage, after Jesus makes these claims that I am the good shepherd, it says that the, the Jews gathered were convinced he was demon-possessed. That this statement, I am the good shepherd, is actually blasphemous in his context. Because what Jesus is doing, he's using the same language that Yahweh used to reveal himself to Moses in Exodus. Moses sees the, the, the bush that's on fire, and he's basically like, okay, who do I tell the people you are? And Yahweh says, say, I am who I am. Really clear name. <laughs> but in that moment, Jesus is tying himself to the, the Israel's God, Yahweh. He is equating himself equal that he is God I am who I am and they think he's demon possessed because he's claiming to be God but before this in John 9 Jesus performs this miracle a man who was born blind at birth and he heals them and the Jewish leaders see this Instead of going, oh my goodness, this is a miracle. They go, who gave you the authority to do this? And they start bickering and fighting and questioning. And, and they, they, they are distracted. They fail to see the work of God amidst their people because they're so focused on their preconceived notions of what God should look like, of how their Messiah should show up, of what, re- of, of what worship should look like, of the rituals. They had lost sight they were distracted. And it's in this story, Jesus saying, hey, 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 over here. I am the good shepherd. I am the one your people have been waiting for, for generations. Now, from this story, there's two kind of theological points I want us to look at and then kind of the application for how this can play out in our lives. The first one, as I go through because I got distracted, is, go back, go back. There we go. Jesus is setting himself apart from the other shepherds. In the beginning of John 10, he's talking about shepherds, and some of those were the faithful shepherds. But he's saying, no, I am. I am completely different. I am set apart. I am not on par with any of those other shepherds. I am the good shepherd. Before that, he says, I am the door. Jesus is making these exclusive claims. Now, we live in a culture, especially with, with our, um, our kind of like young adults and high school and middle school, that, that and we've all kind of grown up this evening, like all paths lead to God, like everything's just kind of leading up a mountain. And I'm not saying that to mock or make fun of other world religions, but they say Jesus is just a good teacher. He's a prophet. He, he's a really moral guy. He was pointing other people to God, and some people believe it and don't, but that's okay. And that's not what Jesus taught. He just simply didn't teach it. He said, I am the good shepherd. I am the only way to God. 
Was his claim exclusive? Yes, and that's kind of a dirty word in our time, exclusivity. But his claim was exclusive, but made available to all. And unfortunately, I think a lot of Christians, and I'm sure I've fallen into this at times, take these truth statements, this exclusivity, and we actually, instead of using it as an invitation as Jesus did, because he says, I'm the good shepherd. The sheep will know my voice and they'll come to me. We go, listen to the voice. Uh, 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 and we use it as a weapon to bash God's sheep instead of being people of compassion and love and mercy to point people to the good shepherd. And the other point is this. Jesus willingly laid down his life. If you've been in the Sunday morning Bible hour class, um, they're working through a book, another gospel, and talking a lot about deconstruction and, and people moving away from Orthodox Christianity to other things. The word progressive Christian, I would just say, isn't Christianity. It's just something else. But there's this kind of thing, this idea in the world of what happened on the cross, because Jesus says, I willingly laid down my life. He's alluding to the cross, that we that many people have come to kind of understand what happened on the cross was divine child abuse. And what I mean by that is you have the Old Testament God who's angry and wrathful and just wants to stomp humanity and he just hates everyone and wants to punish and smite. And then Jesus is the son, like the one that's like grown up in an abusive home. Like, oh my gosh, I got to make everything okay. And he gets on the cross and, and the father just unleashes hell and wrath and anger and fury on him. And Jesus is like, ah, oh, dad, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And it's just this weird, grotesque, gross picture of what's happening on the cross. But Jesus says, that's not what's going to happen. He says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own cord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus was in complete control of what was happening. He was in lockstep with the Father. He knew what his mission was. It was to go to the cross. And he was also 100% human. So in the garden, we see him on his knees, crying and bleeding blood, saying, Father, if there's any other way, show me, but I trust you. Let's go do this. You see, Jesus was the substitutionary atonement. He was the sacrificial lamb. He stood in your place because we apart from christ unleash hell into the world all the time we rebel against god we don't love god we don't love our neighbors we unleash hell and on the cross jesus stands in our place and he absorbs the wrath that sin deserves he absorbs hell he defeats death on your behalf and on my behalf he stands in our place and this is the center of the Christian faith, that we worship a crucified Christ. We don't worship a God that we have to try to get to the mountain. We worship a God that condescends and dies in our place. But he has the power and the authority to take that life back 
up. And that's why the, Christ, the church has proclaimed for generations, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. The cross is good news for those who follow Christ because sin has been defeated. And we have new life through it. And Jesus talks about those who follow him. He says in Matthew that we too are to bear our own crosses. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, his, the people he was talking to at that time, like, pick up a what? You realize, Jesus, that's a torture device created by the Roman Empire to execute criminals. <laughs> yeah, pick yours up and follow me. And whoever does that will lose their life, but you'll gain true life. It sounds like abundant life to me. That the heart of abundant life is bearing our cross and following Jesus. But here's the good news. Jesus does not invite us to go where he hasn't already been. We can see this hindsight is 2020. But Christ has gone before us. He bore the cross for you and for me. And because now we are new, we are born again in him, we can deny ourselves which is probably the dirtiest thing in our culture you could ever tell someone to do. Pick up your cross and follow me. Now, what does that mean for you today? What does the cross mean for you? That's actually the wrong question. <laughs> because Christianity is not an individualistic sport. It's a team effort. What does the cross mean for the church, the collective body of Christ? Last week, we confirmed our, our high school students, and they, they confirmed and affirmed their faith, and we made it very clear that you are being confirmed into the church. In church, it's now our responsibility to love them and serve them and walk with them and keep them in the faith. It's not an individualistic effort. But I wonder... If we, and I mean this as the church in the West, but even as Bethany, have we just gotten distracted? As I said, Pastor Martin and I, we get all these things for church stuff, and him and I, like, we don't really love going to pastor's conferences or, like, pastor's hangouts. It's always like, so what's the vision and mission of Bethany? What's your discipleship plan? How are you going to reach Gen Z? What about the other generation that you don't even know yet? How are you going to deal with mental health? What about social justice issues? What about money and tithing and anxiety? How are you going to address the, the election coming up? Oh, that's going to be fun. Well, how are you going to do all these things? And it's, stop! Are those things important? Yes. But have we put those things before the most important thing? All right, like... I'm so excited the remodeling's happening, but like it's eaten the staff's lunch at times when it's like, really? <laughs> We're talking about colors of floors? <laughs> Are we distracted? Have we forgotten what it means to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow Jesus? 
Well, if we focus more as a community of followers in South Austin and the surrounding areas, instead of focusing our energy on programs, which aren't bad, hear me, they're not bad, but we focus more on what it means as a community to still our hearts before the Lord and listen and discern Jesus' call on our faith community and trust that as we do that, he'll actually tell us what to do next. Instead of saying, this is the way we've done it for 60 years, let's just keep doing it, which maybe he will say. But say, Lord, where are you inviting us to follow you next? And then wait in expectation. Go, wow, look at what he's calling us to. What does that mean for us? Challenge our elders over the next month to be praying about some things that may help us move in that direction. You're like, what is, what's this? There's no secret. Like, we're not blowing Bethany up by any means. Just saying, Lord, let's just pause for a second. The last three years have been crazy. Let's just, let's just be still before the Lord and trust that he'll move us where he wants us to. A couple chapters after this story, Jesus says this. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to, buy, going to die. Jesus, as he is hoisted up on a wooden torture device, says, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The sheep know my voice. Psalm 23, the shepherd leads us by green pastures and still waters, even though we walk through the valley of shadow of death. My prayer and hope, and I know it's Pastor Martin's and our staff and uh, the elders and council is to say, Lord, we trust you. Teach us what it means to hear your voice follow you, to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow you because, Jesus, you have gone before us. You denied yourself. You picked up your cross and died for us. You died for us. And it's there we find true life. And that's why every week as we gather as a community of faith, we end our time together at the table. Because it is in this meal that Jesus comes. He went to his disciples and said, this is right before he dies, and he makes a new covenant with them, and he says, you're going to receive my body and blood. That's going to strengthen you. It's going to bring you forgiveness, and it's going to send you out. And now as followers of Jesus, we center our time together around this table. But before we do that, we we examine our hearts. It's a communal meal. Is there anyone, you don't have to raise your hand, anyone in here that you've maybe been sideways with this week? Maybe. And you confess that. Maybe you actually go talk to them. Have you loved your neighbor with your whole heart? No. Have you loved the Lord with your whole heart? 
Have you spent more time following football stats than reading your Bible this week? Are you distracted? I am. So we go to God in prayer and confession as I lead us in confession. As the band comes forward to start leading us in song. Lord, we hear from this story that you are the good shepherd. We thank you for that. We thank you that you come to us. And Lord, um, as we prepare our hearts and our